Good morning, family. I'm so excited today to start with one of our three main series is for this year, and uh, this whole year we're going to focus, uh, a lot of our focus in terms of preaching will be around this idea of knowing God. But in this term, we're starting with a focus on Jesus, and the title of this series is simply Fixed. Fixed. And that word comes from one of our key scriptures is Hebrews 12, verse 1 to 2. Lena actually already read it this morning. In Hebrews 12, we read the following, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For us to go the distance with Jesus, to stay faithful in our faith, to continue to grow, this is a very important thing that we have to keep, get right is that we remain fixed on Jesus, who Jesus is. We are quick to say as Christians that we are not Christians as a religious activity, but this is a relationship that we are in. And a relationship requires that if a relationship is going to grow, if a relationship is going to stay healthy, that the people within it remain fixed on knowing each other. It's amazing to me, Natasha and I have been married 32 years this year, and I'm still getting to know her. Amen? Any other husbands want to say, my wife still is a little bit of a mystery to me. And, uh, you know, we get to know our spouses. Um, you know, perhaps the wife will say, my husband is a little bit of a mystery to me also. Half the time, I don't know what he's thinking. And the other half, I don't think he's thinking at all. Uh, you know, in a marriage relationship, it's this privilege of, of when we say yes there in front of our community and our families and we, we, we look at one another. It's always when I do a, a marriage ceremony, I make sure that as they say the vows and as they make a proclamation, they're looking at one another. They're saying to each other, I'm inviting you to get to know me and I want to get to know you. And I'm going to spend the rest of my life fixed on you. To know you. Isn't it amazing? And I mean, we've seen it so many times with perhaps marriage counseling, where a, a couple can be so loving of each other and, and getting to know each other. But then at some point, something can happen and the one's eye begins to wander. And perhaps it's just a 1% wonder in the beginning at first, where they're not fixed on their partner anymore, fixed to get to know them, fixed to to remain faithful to this relationship, but they just, for some other reason, get a little distracted. And, and, they, and, and as we say, the eye starts wondering whether it's on something else or often the case, someone else. And it doesn't take long if they don't correct that and fix again on their spouse that they, they start going off on a journey where suddenly they start noticing everything they don't like about their spouse more than they like the things that they do like. Because the heart's now shifting. And the heart's moving. And before long, you'll have a person standing in front of us as, as pastors and they'll say, I just don't love my spouse anymore. I just don't remember why we got married in the first place. And that is often the result of you've not fixed. You've not remained fixed. And if I'm in a relationship with Jesus, I think the same principle, the same reality counts. We started this year with the word of step into 2024. And you'll remember, I felt the Lord inviting us to step in. Step into a relationship with Him. Step closer to Him so that we can ultimately step out and share what we have with Him. But it's this invitation, the Lord's saying, step in, come on. I want you to know me. I want you to be closer to me, to know me more. And to do that, you have to fix your eyes. And can I tell you, as a believer... This is our lifelong pursuit is to remain fixed on Jesus, to behold him, to contemplate him, to consider him all day, every day. And this is the invitation I want to respond to. How do we get to know God better? How do we get to know him more and walk this journey with him? I don't want to spend my life as as is remarked here in John 14, verse 9, Jesus speaking to his disciples, and to one of his disciples, the following, he said, Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? 
How many of you think that that would be so sad? If you spent a long time with Jesus, like Philip did, roughly about three years at that stage, having seen Jesus almost on a daily basis, walking with Jesus, having experienced so much with Jesus, but Jesus looks at him and says, Philip, don't you know me? Don't you know me? I certainly don't want to end up in a situation like that where I may think I know Jesus, but Jesus says, don't you know me? Don't you know me? It's my lifelong learning is to get to know Jesus. And therefore, I can't be in some uncommitted relationship with him. There's a word that is being used right now to describe some people's relationships, and it's the word situationship. I don't know if you've heard that word. Perhaps the younger people are a bit more comfortable with it. Now, I'm, I'm using that word, and I'm going to sanitize it a little bit because it has a very strong sexual overtone. It's, it's when two people are in a relationship, but they've not defined their relationship, and they don't want to define their relationship because the moment they define it, it requires commitment. So they're sort of in a non-committal relationship, but they want all the benefits of a committed relationship. Friends with benefits, have you heard that kind of statement? That's a situationship. So I just, you know, when I need you, I need you to be there, but I, you know, you can't really count on me. And people like that kind of arrangement if it suits them. Can I tell you, the Lord's not interested in a situationship with you. The Lord's not interested in you going, Lord, you know, I believe in you, I love you, you are wonderful, and when I need you, I'll call upon you. But for the rest of the time, if you don't mind, just let me do what I want to do. You know? How many of you know that that is not what Jesus died for? Imagine, let's reverse it around. Imagine God had a situationship relationship with you. Where he says, oh, you know, I don't want to name this relationship. I don't want to define it. I don't want to be committed to it in any way. If you need me, call on me, and if I can, I'll be there. How many of you would want a God like that? No, yet we want to do that with him. We want to treat him in that way. He defines our relationship. He's not scared to call it something. He calls his relationship with you. I am the bridegroom, you are the bride. He's not like, hey, I think I like you, you know. I think you're cool and perhaps we may spend some time. He says, no, you are my bride. He says, you are my children. You are my beloved. You are my family. He defines the relationship and so should we. You have many people nowadays walking around and saying, you know, I believe in Jesus. I, I respect Jesus. I think Jesus is wonderful, but I'm, I, I don't want to define my relationship with Jesus. I have a spirituality. I have a spiritual experience with Jesus, but I'm not going to call it anything. I don't, it's just not equal, is it? Jurgen Klopp, who many of you will know, especially if you're a Liverpool supporter, is the current manager of Liverpool, but he's a Christian. And so shockingly, just the other day, he announced that he's going to resign at the end of the season and take a sabbatical. And this flabbergasted everybody because they were like, he's you know, they're leading the log at the moment. Pains me to say that they could win the league this year again. And it's like he's, you know, they're doing really well. But he says, I need to take a break. In an interview years ago, Somebody was asking him about his dreams for football, for the club that he was managing for Liverpool. And his answer, it was confusing to people. He said this, he said, my problem is that I'm a Christian. Therefore, I don't think the success depends on me. And I actually want others to have more success. And it's known. He has defined his relationship with God. He's not in a situationship. It changes everything about his life. And how he behaves. And, and that's how we should be as Christians, isn't it? I'm in a committed relationship. My eyes are fixed on Jesus. I don't want anything to distract me. That's why he, this, the writer says, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Who are these cloud of witnesses? These are the people who have stayed fixed their whole lives on Jesus. And they're looking at us. They're observing us, cheering us on. 
Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us not get caught up and distracted and let our gaze wander from Jesus. But let us remain fixed on Jesus so that we may get to know him and know God. Now the wonderful thing about knowing God is knowing God is something that consumes my whole life. To know God is, as as the Bible says, it's my whole heart, my whole mind, my whole being, my whole activity. It's everything. God consumes everything. If I want to know God, I have to come with everything so that I may know him. You see, because this is the challenge about knowing God, particularly our God, the God that the Bible tells us about, is it's actually very hard to get to know him. Why do I say that? You say, oh, that doesn't sound right. Do you know why it's hard to, hard to get to know God? Because he's far bigger than what you can ever imagine. There's more to him than you will ever begin to understand. He is holy, the Bible says. Part of that holiness means he's other. He's different than me. I am made in his image to reflect some of who he is, but I can never reflect all of who he is because he's far bigger than what I am. Far more Majestic, we sang that song just now. He's bigger than the air I breathe. He's more than. It's like some people often say, it's like an ant trying to understand an elephant and fathom the life of an elephant. So we are, we are, we are mere mortals with limited reasoning and capacity and we are asked to get to know God. You just begin to think about him and your head begins to hurt. How many of you have ever tried to understand the Trinity? Still today, 2,000 years of contemplation on the Trinity, we still don't understand it. If a pastor ever explains the Trinity to you in a way that you can actually understand it, he's probably wrong. Because it's too complex for us to understand. We can know what it's not, but we don't quite know how it works. Because we don't have other Trinities running around on the planet. There's no, nothing or no one else you can point to and say, hey, there's a Trinity, God's like that. He's out. Have you ever tried to explain to somebody the incarnation? How Jesus, the Son of God, can be fully man, fully God at the same time, born of a virgin, walking on the earth, dying, raising from the dead. You think about it, your head begins to hurt. We struggle to even begin to understand it, never mind properly explain it. Again, in good theology, what you can do is say what it's not. And you can create like a a space and almost say, it's something in here, but we don't quite fully understand it because it's more than our capacity to understand. God spoke everything into being. How is that possible? None of us were there the day he did it. So we don't quite understand it. Jesus is coming back again. How that's going to happen, we don't quite understand. Yet the scripture says, I want you to know me. And not just know about me, not just to have some vague idea of me, but I want you to know me. How's that possible? How do you know that which is unknowable? Unless you have a teacher, unless you have a translator, an interpreter, and that's the Holy Spirit. It is the job of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, it's better for you that I go so that the Holy Spirit will come and he will guide you into all truth. The Holy Spirit is the one that says, now I want you to know who God is. And how does the Holy Spirit do that? The Holy Spirit does it in two ways in particular. First of all, the Holy Spirit authored the word, the scripture. He wrote the scripture through the agency of humanity and through cooperation with inspired people, he authored the scripture. What is the purpose of the Bible? is so that through the scripture I can get to know who God is. It is the revelation of who God is. It's the scripture. Now sometimes we mistreat the scripture slightly as Christians. Sometimes we treat the Bible as if it's a handbook for life, merely. It's like it's got the cheat codes for life. 
So if you wanna be successful, then just study the Bible and, and know what the Bible says and that'll help you be successful. If you wanna have money, what does the Bible say about money? And if I follow the Bible's rules about money, I'll have money. Now, does the Bible contain great cheat codes for life? Yes. Fantastic truth. If you, if you understand what the Bible teaches and live it, it will be of great benefit to your life. But how many of you know that's not the purpose of the Bible? It's to be a living document, a manual for life that if you follow it, you'll know how to live. Secondly, we sometimes treat the Bible as a book of promises. And, as, and, and, we, and we sort of say, God, you made some promises in the Bible, and so I'm gonna read the Bible and extract all those promises so that I can hold you to your promises, and then life will go well with me because I know your promises. Now again, does the Bible contain promises? Thousands. Does the Bible have great promises? Is it worth me knowing those promises and praying through those promises and understanding? Yes, but that's not the purpose of the Bible. What is the purpose of the Bible? is to show us who God is. It's to draw me into a relationship with him. It's to draw me to experience this amazing God, to walk with him, to turn towards him. That is the purpose. So the Bible uses rich genres of, 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 um, and illustrates who God is. We have historic records, narratives about God's activity with mankind. We have stories that are told about God's interaction with humanity. We have songs and poetry written to describe something of, of who this God is. We have literature of wisdom that talks about how to live life in God. We have literature that mourns how far we've fallen away from God. We have literature that talks about what the future will look like, where God is. But everything is centered about God. It's about Him. You see, if I treat the Bible as a manual for life, then the Bible's actually about me. If I treat the Bible as a book of promises, then the Bible's actually about me. It's about my success. Can I tell you, nothing of the success of this world ultimately rests on you and me. Understanding the Bible, knowing the Bible, even holding to the promises, it depends on him. I get to cooperate and live in that truth of who he is, of who he is. And that's what the Bible does. The Bible says to me, this is who God is. And not so that I can write a test and, and, and pass an exam. So, you know, one day we're gonna stand in this long queue before we get into heaven. And then, you know, because heaven's a very progressive place, we're gonna get handed out iPads as we sit in a big waiting room with multiple choice questions and, and longer sections and then an essay at the end and we're all gonna sit in heaven's waiting room and write a test and say, yes, you know, that's my biblical knowledge, you know. What was the name of the guy who, who, who Peter cut his ear off? Does you, do you know what his name and, and you know, how many, how many days and, and you know, how many animals were on the ark and yes, we write a test and if I pass the test, I can go into heaven because I know God. Now, how many of you know that's not knowing God? As important as those things, what is knowing God? Knowing God is living with God. You are my people and I am your God and I will dwell among you. To know God is to experience him. But my experience of him is shaped by what the scripture tells me. I wanna experience God more and more every day. I've had amazing experiences of God. And that's how the Holy Spirit, the second way the Holy Spirit helps me know God is to empower me, to fill me, to manifest God's presence, to let me walk in the gifts of the Spirit and in the power of the Spirit because that helps me to know God. But the same Holy Spirit wrote the word, the same Holy Spirit helps me experience God on a day-to-day -day basis. So there's gonna be no inconsistency. He's not confused. Through the word, I get to know who God is in a way that is beyond my experience. You cannot only know God because you've experienced him. If your knowledge of God is defined by your experience, your problem is you will be deceived because your experience will be nothing more than that, your experience. And it will always be limited to what you can understand, what you can experience. Even if you do experience things that are like amazing, why we need the scripture is the scripture tells us who God is that is bigger than our experience.
that is more than our experience, that draws our experience in line, that keeps our experience connected to the truth, empowered by the truth. You see, I can experience, so let me use this example. The Bible tells me that through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, I can speak in tongues today. And that's very important to know. Because for a long period of time in our human history, we didn't speak in tongues anymore. So we forgot that almost until somebody went and said, hey, the Bible says, and then started pursuing that experience. Now we can have that experience. But that experience is defined by the scripture. The scripture also tells us when we shouldn't be speaking in tongues. When we can't go too far with the experience, doesn't it? The, Holy, the scripture tells us about the gift of prophecy and the value of the gift of prophecy and how in a community like this we can, we can share in the, prof, the gifts of prophecy and have the prophecy available to us and, and, and experience that rich experience of God. But the scripture also tells us when it goes too far. Because the scripture is the word of God. It is the consistent, trustworthy unchanging word of God that defines everything else. Uh, uh, towards the middle of last year, or sort of in the last while, we started realizing that our combi that's served our family since 2008 was getting a bit old. And uh, uh, we, you know, as, we, as many of you know, we love to go down to the coast, uh, down the garden route and tow our caravan, and the combi's gearbox gave in and spent a lot of money to fix it, and I started going, mm, I don't know if I can trust this vehicle for a long trip anymore. And so we had to go start going through the process of, now what do we do? We're also at a stage where our children have grown up, they have their own, many of them have their own vehicles, and you know, so it didn't quite feel like it made sense to replace the combi with another combi, but I really wanted to hold on to that feeling of my whole family in the car, and I'm driving you know, a little bit of that childhood memory of them under their blankets, snoring away or sleeping while I'm driving. I was like holding on to that. But Natasha said, no, this is enough now. We need to do something for you and me that we can enjoy up and, you know, going into the next stage of our life. So, so we considered and we ultimately came to the conclusion, we're going to sell the combi. And, uh, but what do we buy then? She inherited some money from her parents uh, that passed away. And so she said, I know what we're going to buy. And she convinced me, and I became a true South African for the first time in my life. <laughs> I bought a bucky. Ak is now a boor. I am now a four by four bucky driving South African. If I was living in Texas, my bucky would be a bit bigger, but then I would be a proper Texan. Amen, Mike? Yeah. With a couple of guns in the back seat, I suppose. Okay, never mind. So we bought a bucky. Now it's a four by four. This bucky can do things my combi would never be able to do and should never be able to try and do. So I thought, well, it will be good for me to go on a course. I've done four by four driving in the past, but I want to understand this vehicle and I, I want to go on a course. So I went last Saturday on an adventure experience where they were trying to teach me what my bucky can do and cannot do. What is healthy for it and me and what is not healthy for it and me. So we went there, they put us in a classroom for about an hour and they taught us all sorts of scientific terms and, and mechanics about four by four and what does that mean? How's that different than two by four? What is ESP and what is ABD and what is you know, Diflock? And they taught us all this stuff. So that after the hour, they say, now get in your bucky and you are going to now drive our course to experience what your bucky can do. And so when I sat in the vehicle, they would come up to the obstacle. They would say, okay, now you stand in front of this obstacle. It's like this hill that you have to drive over or this dongas or whatever. And then the guy will say, okay, now I want you to engage the diff lock. Now, because I've done the class, I knew what he was talking about. I knew where to press the button. I knew how to do that. Or he would say, now disengage the diff lock or now put it in low range or now do this. He didn't have to do it for me. I could do it because I attended the class. Now, in the pressurized moment, sometimes I would go, Ooh, and then he would say, no, this is what you do, and, you know. and it was phenomenal. My bucket could do things I never thought possible. I was unfortunately on my own in the car, and I was like, man, I wish somebody was with me, so that we could, this is like fantastic. But he also said, now, this you cannot do with your bucket. And that's learning to get to know something. 
It requires that I do the work of understanding what this is. Because if I don't, then I will try and do things with my bucky that it's not supposed to do and I will cause damage. Or if I don't know what it is, then I will not use all of its features and I will just be driving on the N1 with my four by four. Never experiencing what it can do. And that's the job of the Holy Spirit. He's the teacher. And he takes the word and he instructs us in who God is in ways that is far beyond our experience. But when the word teaches it to me, I start going, okay, now I can experience this within its loving limits. And I I don't have to fear because I can experience the raw, full power of the Holy Spirit. But it is contained within that which is healthy and good. Not just for me, but for the community of the faith. So, So God says, I want you to know me. Come know me. Know me. I'm I'm actually quite amazing. It'll scare you at times, but I I want you to know me. And the Holy Spirit comes and he uses the word. I think firstly he uses the word. And then on top of the word, he gives us the experience. And I don't know about you, but I want the full, I want everything. I want the whole package. I want all the bells and whistles. I want to know everything. Because that's the privilege that I've been invited to. How do we know this God? What does the Holy Spirit do? Firstly, he reveals Jesus to us. Jesus is our direct access into knowing who God is. Because Jesus came as God took on the form of a man and walked among us, lived among us, and said that you may know me. Because if you know me, you know the Father. And so we want to know Jesus And that is what the book of Hebrews is about. The book of Hebrews is written to us to understand who Jesus is. Now, when you begin to read the book of Hebrews, and I'm going to encourage you, we're doing the Bible reading program, please do that, that's fantastic. But every now and then throw in there the book of Hebrews also. When you read the book of Hebrews, you'll feel, this is a little bit like Leviticus. It's a bit strange. It's a bit difficult. And it's because it shares so many pictures and that to the hearers and to the people he was speaking to made perfect sense, but we're not them, so there's some of the literacy that doesn't quite make sense to us. You know, if you, if you write a poem about Boerewors roles, South Africans will immediately know what you're talking about. But perhaps a Norwegian will go, what are we talking about? Because they don't understand. Amen. Amen. And so it is with the book of Hebrews. It was written to a particular people. But as we understand what they understood, we can say, now, what does that mean for us? So let me tell you quickly a little bit about the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, there's lots of discussion about who wrote the book of Hebrews. I'm just going to settle with, we don't know. Okay? It's an epistle in the New Testament that was written round about the middle of the 60th year after Jesus. So it's about 65 AD this book was written. Now that's important to remember because that tells you something about some of the historic events of the time and also that this was about 30 years, a generation after Jesus walked the earth. So we're now entering a stage in the life of the New Testament church where the memory, the eye testimony, the eyewitness testimony of Jesus and what Jesus did and who Jesus was is beginning to fade slightly. And the people that are now rising up as the new leaders of the church are becoming the first generation of leaders that didn't actually walk with Jesus. We're also in a space where the the scripture wasn't yet completely defined. They had the Old Testament and they had letters that were written to the churches, but they didn't have a canon of scripture. There was much about who Jesus is and what Jesus did and what this means and what does the Trinity mean and what is the incarnation that they were still trying to figure out and were slightly confused about. It was a time where they were open towards lots of teachings that came around and some were deceived because everybody had a theory. And so it was a time where it became a bit of a risky time for the, for the church in its early development. Are, are they going to stay fixed on Jesus, the real Jesus, or are they going to be sidetracked and start to believe things about Jesus? That's not true and ultimately will shape and define their experience that will get them into trouble. And so it's in this time that this book is written. It's written to a particular group of people also. 
At the time, there was probably about 50,000 Jewish, people of Jewish background that was living in Rome. And this letter is written to those people. Christians in Rome that had a Jewish background. So they were either Christians because they converted from Judaism to follow Christ, or they were people that were Gentiles but had an interest in Judaism and then entered Christianity through that interest. So they had a Jewish understanding, uh, uh, an understanding of the Old Testament, but they've now converted to Christianity. At the time, the Roman Empire did not see a difference between Christian and Jew. They thought Christians was just part of the Jewish faith. They sort of folded them in there. But what was busy going on is the tension between Jews and Christians was increasing. So it seems from historic writing what was happening at the time is that more and more there were riots and conflicts that were arising in Rome between Jews and Christians. So the, you know, typically around the synagogue, the, they would have a synagogue you know, service and then the Christians would say, no, 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 Jesus is the Messiah. And then the Jews would say, no, we're still waiting for the Messiah. And an argument would break out and a riot would start and people would be unhappy. And this got to the emperor's ears and he was like fed up with these Jews and Christians that were causing problems in the Roman Empire. So in a, uh, at a, sp a specific point, uh, so I forget the date now, 8060 something, 8049, sorry. In 8049, Emperor Claudius, who was the emperor, banned and caused an exile of Jewish, particularly Jewish leaders and even some Christian leaders, and he kicked them out of Rome. He said, I'm, I'm fed, fed up with your causing trouble here, and he, he exiled them from Rome. We read about this, for instance, in Acts chapter 18, verse 2 to 3. That when Paul goes to Corinth, he meets this couple, Priscilla and Aquilas, and the scripture says, a native of Pontiff who had recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. So Priscilla and Aquila were Christians from a Jewish background, and they were exiled out of Rome. So Paul meets them in Corinth now. And so was many people of the time. So persecution was starting to build. It was becoming more and more uncomfortable for the Christian. Because not only was the Christian now not quite at home with the Jews because they disagreed with the Jews, but they were also increasingly uncomfortable within the Roman Empire because the Romans started picking up that these Christians refused to worship Caesar and the, the heat was beginning to build. So it was a time where the Christians was feeling the pressure externally from, from persecution. It was also an internal strain because they were wrestling about what is who God really is, how do we know God, what is Jesus, who is Jesus, and it's into this context that the book of Hebrews is written. Now to give you a bit of a feel for the context, I've got my friend Ntsako, who I hear is going to descend from the heavens somewhere. And he's going to read you a story of a person. This is a made up story, but it's a great story that gives us a little bit of just a sense of what it felt like to be a Christian at that time in Rome. So Ntsako, thank you. Won't you give Ntsako a round of applause and just... The story is about 620-something words long, so it's going to take a couple of minutes. But just listen to this. Thank you, Tok. Thank you, Luke. Antonius sat alone in a deteriorating second-story apartment located in a slum on the slope of Esquiline Hill in Rome. Rain battered the worn walls and the room, now dark with the storm, forced him to light a small oil lamp. The feeble glow revealed hungry roaches scattering to safety, seeking a refuge in the cracks of the walls. Next door, the cries of a baby merged with the infant's father screaming obscenities at his wife. A heated conversation echoed briefly as unseen business partners descended the stairs. Outside, Roman soldiers marched through the muddy streets spurred by sharp commands. Antonio sat alone, contemplating his life as a Christian. And that morning, his employer, Brutus, once again turned from the task of pricing vegetables to ridicule this young Christian. Brutus was big, obnoxious, and cruel, and his verbal jabs just kept coming. 
Antonius cringed against the man's emotional blows, wishing he could strike back. Turning the other, turning the other cheek seemed only to invite further emotional blows. Yet he bit his lip, nursed his wounded pride, and again asked the Lord to forgive his thoughts. Fifteen years ago, the expulsion of the Jews had set the stage for the ongoing harassment and persecution of Christians by both Jews and pagans. Not yet a Christian at the time, Antonius had heard about the conflict. His conversion at 17 had strained family bonds, particularly with his grandfather, an outspoken opponent of Christians. Now, as the church faced increasing abuse, Antonius questioned the Lord's presence and felt the weight of emotional fatigue. He had been told the cost of following the Messiah, but somehow his experience differed from his expectations. He initially believed his joy would never be broken, but now, along with others in the Christian community, he questioned whether Christ was truly in control and wondered if God had turned a deaf ear to their pleas for relief. Antonius reminisced about the traditions of the synagogue and the support of the Jewish community. He appreciated the fellowship of Christ's community, but genuinely missed the traditions of his ancestors, and he missed his family. Some would still pass him on the streets as they would a Gentile, without a word or acknowledgement. That was difficult, and today his loneliness closed in around him like a dark, damp blanket. His apartment, a stark reflection of his circumstances, served as a constant reminder of his lowly status. Once a tailor's apprentice in Jewish quarters, he now spent his days sorting through rotting produce and dealing with obnoxious Roman slaves. Poverty and Christianity invited double portions of ridicule, making Antonius one of the church's poorer members. Even rich slaves tossed him with overripe figs with mocking laughter. Loneliness and bitterness closed in on Antonius, and he began skipping weekly church gatherings. A spiritual itch warned him of his skewed perspective, but he pushed these thoughts away. The believers were meeting that night, and despite temptation, Antonius decided to attend. Rumor had it that the leaders had received a document from somewhere back east. In the gathering room, weariness hung in the air as friends exchanged greetings and tried to engage in friendly banter. The hostess offered drinks, but dejection cast a shadow over the room. The group's leader, Joseph, arrived a little late, a little out of breath, and visibly moved from a meeting with other leaders. Despite his age, Joseph stood before the group with a twinkle in his eye. Joseph announced the receipt of a significant document from the East, sparking curiosity in the room. The elder unrolled the parchment and began reading with a twinkle in his eye. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. understand who Jesus is so that we don't forget and get sidetracked into pulling into little things that may initially look like they're quite similar but eventually leads us astray and will cause us to eventually lose our love for Jesus. It encourages us to stay fixed on who Jesus is and reminds us of the greatness and actually tells us why would you want to go anywhere else than be with Jesus. There is nothing and no one greater than Jesus. And that's what Hebrews 1, verse 1, that's the to 4, says. And I'm going to read it to you. In the original language, it's one sentence. And it's a, you'll, you'll hear it's a dense, heavy sentence. But he says this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in least these last days, he had spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has, inherit, has inherited is superior to theirs. 
Not an easy sentence to just, but let me just highlight for you, and I'm almost finished. Some of the things it tells us about Jesus, and the, one of the commentators says, this is, Jesus is the climax of divine communication. He is the epitome of the clearest and greatest communication of who God is. If you want to know God, you have to know who Jesus is. And just in this one sentence, it tells us these things about Jesus. He is the heir of all things. He's the creator of the universe. He's the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He sustains all things. Nothing can exist without him. He forgave our sins. He's seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven and he is superior to the angels, which is just another perhaps way of saying he's superior to any other spiritual forces. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. We are called to fix our eyes on. Athanasius writes about what happened in the Garden of Eden. He says, in the Garden of Eden, God created Adam and Eve with the potential to become more and more like God. In the way they thought, in the way they acted, in the way they managed and governed this world, they had the potential to represent who God is. Not be God in every way that God is, but to become like him, made in his image. But to become like God required that they kept on looking at him, knowing him, fixing their eyes on God. And this is why they had a daily meeting with God where God would come down and walk in the garden with them. And it became their opportunity not just to process their day, not just to talk what they were experiencing, but to look at God and see God. To see his majesty, to see his love, to see his grace, to see his righteousness. And to, as long as they kept their eyes focused on him, naturally they would just grow and develop to begin to be able to think the way God does, to act the way God does, because they had that potential. And nothing kept them from doing that. And they grew. And they would ultimately govern this world and, and manage this world on his behalf in the way he would have done it, because they were so fixed on him. But then sin came. And sin was when the enemy said to them, stop looking at God, just turn your gaze away from him. And he offered them an alternative, something else to look at. And what was that alternative themselves? He said, you're not gonna know life because you look at God, you, you need to look at yourself. You need to understand what is right and wrong. You need to figure it out. And, and so what he did is he made man turn from God. And man began to look inwardly and man began to look at themselves. And the moment that happened, they still have the potential to become like God, but they lost the momentum, the growth, the, the developing of becoming like God. And instead they became more and more selfish and it didn't take long and the first murder took place and then rape and then abuse and, and all sorts of horrible things began to develop because man was now trying to figure out what do I want and how am I going to get what I want? Instead of focused on God, man became focused on self. And the moment that happened, the deterioration began. And the earth was subjected because we are the governors of this earth under God's authority. The, word, the world is subjected to our experience. And our brokenness is now manifesting in this world consistently. Because we're trying to think, oh, what do we want? What do we need? We put ourselves at the center. That's why we have the ecological mess that we have, the economic mess that we have, the, the problem with nations rising up against nations because everybody's saying, I want mine, my place. It's about me and mine. And so this collapse, this death set in. But God kept reminding us that I'm not gonna give up on you. And one day Jesus came, and this God that came down to earth, fully God, fully man, clothed himself with our humanity, and walked among us, and you know what was the difference between him and everybody else that you could see? Is his gaze was not turned away, but his gaze was on the Father. And he walked every day, every moment, and he was fully encaptured, fixed his vision on the Father. He said, if you see me, you see the Father. And he began to walk on this earth and behave in a way that's different than us and, and speak differently and, and just do amazingly different things because he was fixed on the Father, fixed on God because he is God. And then he died for us and he paid the price for our sin so that we can be released from this fixation on self and that we can turn our gaze back to the Father. 
and say, I want to see you, Lord. And as long as I fix my eyes on the Father, this potential of me becoming more and more like him is restored. And every day I become transformed into the image of Christ. My mind is being renewed. I begin to reason the way God reasons. It's not just what I think, it's how I think that changes. Everything begins to shift as long as I behold the Father. The moment I turn away, even if I've prayed the sinner's prayer and given my life to Jesus, the decay will begin to set in again. You see, because Christianity is not a, a prayer I pray, I get saved, so I know, you know I'm okay with God, now I can live the way I want. Christianity is all-consuming. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Be fixed on Him. And the more I consider Him, and the way I consider him is through the scripture. That's why the Bible reading plan is such a great idea. Because the Bible reading plan is not going to expose you to promises and cheats for life. It's going to expose you to who God is. The big story. Say, Lord, I want to fix my eyes on you. That's why we started a year with a week of prayer and fasting where we said, simply Jesus. Lord, we fix our eyes on you. That's why tomorrow on your front line, when the heat's on and the difficulty and, and, you, don't, and, and you get upset by something... What is the Christian's response to something that upsets us, makes us angry? Silence. Because in silence, we turn to the Father and we say, Father, let me see you. Let me see you. And from that place, I respond. But I see him first. I put him front and center. And that's the life of a Christian. And can I tell you, this world, somebody said it this week, I heard somebody say, it is right now like hell is vomiting and all its power on this earth. You and I are not in a space where everything is okay. The agendas of the enemy is accelerating at this time. The battle is real. And the Christian that just wants to have the Bible make them feel good about life is not going to sustain their faith. Because already we're feeling the pressure as Christians. The only way we can go the distance is to say, Lord, let me fix my eyes on you, the author and perfecter of my faith. The one who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Let me behold you. So I want to encourage you and I want to invite you Let's behold him. Let's gaze upon him. In our church here, I want, to, I want to say this, that we see this as our responsibility, those of us that preach from this stage. Our primary responsibility is to draw you to the word and the spirit so that you can get to know God. Our primary responsibility is not to give you the cheats of life, to preach sermons that are motivational and sermons that are, you know, like life lessons. We'll do that from time to time because that's scripture. That's great. But that's not our primary response. We're not going to preach sermons that just makes you feel good about life and about, you know, hey, the promises of God, everything's going to be okay. What we are going to do is say, Lord, this is who you are and let us get to know you. Is that okay? Is that fine? So some, some days you need a bit of motivation and then the Lord will give it and we can do that. But the overarching story is every one of us, this lifelong Lord, show me who you are. And then the Lord will by his spirit make himself known so that we can step out into this very scary, broken, collapsing world and say this is who Jesus is. Let me tell you about my Jesus. The radiance of God's glory. There is hope because of this Jesus. Won't you stand with me? So from next week, we're gonna really get going into Hebrews and we'll do section by section. Obviously, we can't do every verse, every, but we'll do the sort of main thoughts about the book of Hebrews. And I wanna encourage you to stay part of this journey. If you can't come on a Sunday, you know, there's a wonderful thing like, Online, you can view the sermon if you missed it. Um, just because we want to gaze at Jesus. It's not about you know, us and me and us being clever. But Lord, speak to us. Can I pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came. 
you stepped into this mess. The result of us turning away from you, thinking we can do it better. And you stepped in. And you helped us turn our gaze back to fix our eyes on you. Right now we live in a world, Lord, which is increasingly just not wanting to look at Jesus. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, we need you, Holy Spirit. We need you to guide us into all truth. We need you to be our comforter, our counselor. We need your constant companionship, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us who Jesus is so that we may know God. And we open our hearts. We say, Lord, we are not in an uncommitted relationship with you. We are in this with all of our hearts. We define this relationship. I am a follower of Christ. With all my heart, all my mind, all my soul. And we thank you for, for your grace and your power that we receive in that relationship so that we can be faithful to the end and join the great cloud of witnesses and testify about our, our Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I bless every person here, those online, those on the radio. May you in this week have your eyes fixed on Jesus and nothing distract you from him in the practicalities of your life in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Amen. Just uh, if you need prayer this morning, it may be that you've never stepped into a relationship with Jesus. Come to the front. Our team will be here. They want to pray with you. They want to help you or any other need that you have. Remember those that want to find out more about our church, go to the Connect Lounge with Lena. She will meet you there. And also, if you haven't downloaded the U version of the Bible, please do so. Search Hatfield Christian Church. Join the, uh, the, the prayer um, journey, uh, the Bible reading journey there. And uh, those are online. If you want to reach out to us, you'll see the email on your screen also. May the Lord bless you. Have a wonderful week.